You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So who can tell me who said this? Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Does anybody know? You can, you can shout it out. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, the great detective. So if you want to get technical with me, he's a fictional character. So you could say it was the author of the books, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And I'll suggest that that could maybe be the motto of our class tonight. Because we're going to look at a situation that is seemingly impossible, but it happened. Improbable as it may have been. And we're going to ask the question, why? What can account for it? What can explain it? And the title was already announced, so you know it. It's, it's the rapid spread of Christianity. And I'd like to maybe start, because I'm a little bit, I'm always a little bit concerned that maybe people take away the wrong message. And in this case, I want to start with by telling you what message I don't want you to take away. It's just supposed to be a black screen. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. So do that in just a second. In fact, the chart that you can see on the screen right now, that's that's what we're going to put up in a second. And you can see this is a, a pie chart of the religions of the world from a, from a statistics census taken in 2009. So these are the top religions in the world by population. And you can see the top one, Christianity. I've only, I've only put the text for the top four on there, but there's a lot more represented. They're not all religions either. Like you can see agnosticism is on there. Atheism is on there too. It's just one of the smaller slices. So as of 2009, Christianity was comprised of about one third of the people in the world. It's by a significant margin, the largest religion in the world. So what I don't want you to take away from this class is, is that because there are more Christians in the world than any other particular religious domina- denomination or philosophy or anything else, that that must be the one true religion. Because if, if that's the way you thought that, you know, wherever the most, whatever the most people think, that must be the truth, well, you'd have to change your mind all the time. And, and you'd be in trouble here, too, because I mentioned this is from 2009. So if I narrow it down to just the, the top two religions, and then we look at those numbers from three years later in 2012, you can see both of those, the top two, Christianity and Islam, grew, but Christianity grew by 0.07%. And Islam grew by 1.73%. And if things continue on that trajectory, it won't be that long before Christianity is no longer the largest religion in the world. And then what happens? Do you just change your mind because more people believe something else? So whatever the most people believe really is no barometer for what is actually true or not. And so that's not our point when we talk about the rapid spread of Christianity tonight. We want to focus in on a narrow window of time, about 100 years starting when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And if you believe in the New Testament, 
then starting from when he was resurrected, and then when his apostles were sent into all the world to preach the gospel. And that little spark turned into a flame, which ignited into a fire, which despite the, the best efforts of a lot of people, for decades and decades and several hundred years, nobody was able to put out. And the question is why? It should not have succeeded. We're going to talk about all of the reasons why Christianity should not have succeeded. But, but before we do that, I want to give you some, some evidence outside of the Bible and some of it that coincides with the Bible to show how quickly Christianity was spreading right from when it was born and that first hundred years, it was spreading throughout the world very, very quickly. And we're gonna do that by looking at some historians from the time. So these would be Roman historians. The first one is Suetonius, who wrote the lives of the 12 Caesars, about the uh, first 12 Caesars of Rome. And he had a chapter on Claudius. So the time period he's writing about here is about 49 AD. So let's say maybe 15 years after the time of Jesus. And he wrote, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is another word for Christ or Jesus Christ, he, that is the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. So he said that Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome at a, at a point in time. And, you know, interestingly enough, that's in our Bibles, too. It's kind of a throwaway line. And you don't have to turn there with me if you don't want, but it's Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. It's when the Apostle Paul meets this faithful couple, Priscilla and Aquila, for the first time. And it says, Acts chapter 18, verse 2, that Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So they had to leave Rome too. And in these early days... Romans kind of lumped Christians and Jews into the same pot. So even though it's because of the preaching and the acts of the Christians that, that they are kicked out of Rome, all the Jews get kicked out of Rome, not just the Christian Jews, but all the Jews get kicked out of Rome. And so writing about 15 years after that was Tacitus, writing about the year 64 AD, and he's writing about the emperor Nero, famously insane, famously burned down a lot of the city of Rome and scapegoated the Christians to try to sort of get out of it. And this is what Tacitus is talking about. This is how we know about it because of Tacitus. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And he talks about Christianity almost like it's a contagious disease, as it broke out in Judea and spread all the way to Rome. So this is about 30 years after the time of Jesus. And now fast forwarding even more to about the year 112 AD, Pliny the Younger, governor of Asia, had a problem. The problem was the Christians. He couldn't seem to stop them from being disruptive and preaching and spreading the gospel message, and he tried. And so he writes a letter to the emperor in 112 AD to ask for advice. This is what he said. 
I therefore postpone the investigation and hasten to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms, but it seems possible to check and cure it. So if we thought Tacitus was using language that sounded like he was talking about a contagious disease, Pliny actually does. He calls Christianity a contagion. That's how he felt about it, because it spread and he couldn't stop the spread, no matter what he tried to do. Now, here's a map of about that same time period, 112 AD, showing what we know of where there were Christian communities by this time. There were over 40 different Christian communities that we know of based on, based on archaeological evidence and historical writings. And the major centers, the major cities are, are actually named there. So you can see Rome, Ephesus, Antioch, Edessa, Jerusalem, Alexandria. Those purple squares represent other cities that weren't as big that also had Christian populations. And then that sort of yellow section in uh, Asia Minor represents sort of the rural areas that Pliny just talked about. He said it's even spread to the villages and the farms. So it had spread out into the countryside. So by the year 112 AD, Christianity was all over the place. And the Romans were trying hard to stop it. But they couldn't. And the more they tried, the more they seemed to fan the flames. And, and the more they persecuted Christians, the further afield Christians traveled and spread the gospel message. Now, I don't recommend using Wikipedia as a research source, but I do love Wikipedia. It's great for looking for original sources. If somebody writes in Wikipedia, they usually have to cite their sources, and that list of sources is really valuable. But I thought this was interesting, and I haven't checked this. It's been a while since I put this talk together, but at the time, this was the article on the history of Christianity, and under the section called Why Did Christianity Succeed, whoever contributed to, to this particular article said there is no agreement on an explanation of how Christianity managed to, managed to spread so successfully prior to the Edict of Milan and the establishment of Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire. Historians are faced with a problem, especially if the historians are not Christians, if they don't believe in the record of the New Testament, then they've got to explain what happened. Why did this happen? It doesn't make any sense. Why, didn't it, why does it not make sense? We're going to talk about that now. So let's talk about the time period. Let's talk about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had conquered most of the known world, and every city, state, every nation, every people that they conquered, they had to make a decision. They had to decide how much freedom are we going to give these people? Do we let them continue to govern themselves? Do we let them to continue with all of their rituals that they used to, to perform and their customs? Do we let them continue to worship the way that they always have? And the Romans seem to have a pretty simple test for that. They had a great respect for antiquity. The historian Robert Louis Wilkin wrote a book called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. He said, the primary test of truth in religious matters was custom and tradition the practices of the ancients. So the Romans apparently had a, a saying in Latin, it's quad semper, quad ubique, quad ab omnibus, which means what has been held always everywhere by everybody. So if the Romans conquered a people and that people could demonstrate that they have been 
worshiping in this way for hundreds of years, that it stretches back into antiquity. We've been doing things this way, the same way for, for many, many generations. The Romans had a lot of respect for that. So if a culture could demonstrate the antiquity of its customs, then the Romans would be very likely to let them continue to do things the way that they always had. Now, this was very much true of Judaism. So when the Jewish people were conquered by the Romans, you can imagine that the Romans would have a lot of respect for their customs because the, the Jews themselves were very proud of the fact that they had worshipped the same God for many, many generations that had the same customs, which hadn't changed. Their laws, although they built on them quite a bit, also had, had remained the same for hundreds and even over a thousand years. So the Romans continued to let the Jews worship the way they always had, and even to some limited extent govern themselves, although with maybe a, a bit heavy-handed influence on that at least up until a point. We're not going to talk about that tonight in AD 70, but that's a different subject. That was Judaism. We're talking about Christianity. So in early days, in its infancy, Christianity, from a Roman perspective, they may not have distinguished it too much from Judaism because it sprang out of Judaism. But it didn't take long before they recognized that this was something entirely new. This was, if you will, kind of an upstart religion. From a, an outside perspective, here was a group of people who were worshiping a man who had just lived like a few years ago and had been killed. So it was brand new. And in that sense, the Romans would have no respect for it. And, and initially, once the Romans found out about how Christianity, what Christianity was, that it was very much separate from Judaism, although it, it sprang out of Judaism, they had no time for it. Now, more than that, there was a lot of shame associated with Christianity, Christianity itself for a couple of reasons. And the first was that, again, from an outside perspective, it looked like Christians were worshiping a man who had been crucified. Now, that would make no sense to anybody at that time. Another historian, Martin Hengel, wrote, crucifixion was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word. It was a status degradation ritual designed to humiliate in every way, including the symbolic pinioning of the hands and legs, signifying a loss of power and loss of ability to control the body in various ways, including befouling oneself with excrement. Crucifixion was designed not just to destroy a person's body, but to destroy a person's reputation. It was saved for the crimes that the Romans thought were the most heinous crimes. And it was meant to make an example out of somebody. If, so, if a family member of yours had been crucified, your whole family would fall into disrepute. It was meant to destroy your reputation. And one of the earliest pieces of graffiti that has been discovered in the city of Rome looks like this. And it takes maybe a second to look at it and, and, and make sense of what you're looking at, but you can see that there is a cross and there is what looks like a man with a, the head of a donkey being crucified on that cross. And, and then down below what's happening is this other man is worshiping that, that donkey man on the cross. Now, for reasons that I'm, I don't understand, I'm not sure if historians understand either, over time, one of the slanders that was often hurled at Christians, for some reason, was that they worshipped donkeys. And so here we have Jesus depicted as a man with the head of a donkey being crucified. And also, 
this man here worshiping, you can see that there's text there. That text is translated like this, Alexaminos worships God. So whoever wrote this, it's believed they were, they were making fun of Alexaminos. Because how silly would it be to worship somebody who had been crucified? It's a, a little bit comforting to see on a nearby wall, somebody else wrote, Alexaminos is faithful. So Alexaminos must have had at least a couple of friends. And there's a couple of Bible passages that I think really get illuminated for us and we understand the impact of them. When we understand what crucifixion was designed to do and how it was viewed in Roman society and in, and in society in general under the Roman Empire, like Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He said, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. I usually, you know, in, in previous times, I'd gloss right over that part of the verse. But to any outsider, any non-Christian, it would seem ridiculous to worship somebody who had been crucified. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says, We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's another part of that verse, that verse we read, we've read so many times, but I, I, I gloss over that part of it. He despised the shame. He put up with the shame. He had to hang naked on a cross as he slowly died while crowds jeered at him. He despised the shame. And anybody who decided to become a Christian would have to take on that shame because Christians would be ridiculed for it. Now, not only was it a shameful thing that, that Christians, their, their leader, was a man who had been crucified, but where Jesus came from was not something to be proud of either, regardless of what shoes you were in. Because if, if you were a Roman uh, or a Gentile, the, the Romans in general really disliked the Jews. And if you were a Jew, then the place that Jesus came from geographically was also not considered to be the greatest of places. So first of all, let's talk about the Roman perspective. And at this time in history, not that it's not here in our day today as well, but prejudice and stereotyping were a way of life in the Roman Empire. And to give you an example of how strongly the Romans felt about the Jewish people, here's the historian, the Roman historian Tacitus, again, and he's talking about the Jews. He says, in order to secure the allegiance of his people in the future, Moses prescribed for them a novel religion, quite different from those of the rest of mankind. Among the Jews, all things are profane that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they regard as permissible what seems to us immoral. Now, this is interesting. It goes back to something we said earlier. He says, whatever their origin, these observances are sanctioned by their antiquity. So in the midst of, of all these terrible things he's saying about the Jews, he's saying, but one thing they have going for them is they've been doing these things for a very, very long time. And we do respect that. That's why we've made it legal. But he goes on to say, the other practices of the Jews are sinister and revolting and have entrenched themselves by their very wickedness. Among themselves, nothing is barred. They have introduced the practice of circumcision to show that they are different from others. Proselytes to Jewry adopt the same practices, and the very first lesson they learn is to despise the gods, shed all feelings of patriotism, and consider parents, children, and brothers as readily expendable. So this is how the Romans felt about the Jews. 
And remember, Christianity sprang out of Judaism. For a long time, they were considered to be, by some people who didn't understand, one and the same. So from a Roman perspective, the origins of both Christianity and Jesus himself were shameful. It came from Judaism. They hated Judaism, and they hated the Jews. But then you look at the Jewish perspective, and it wasn't that much better, because Jesus was from the region of Galilee, and Galilee was considered to be a land of ignorant farmers without much respect for the law. And Jewish culture, especially at this time, was all about education and knowledge and uh, a very detailed understanding of the law. And that's why when Jesus is, is first calling his disciples and one of his disciples, Nathaniel, hears that they found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel says? John chapter 1, verse 46, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? This is how the Jews felt about where Jesus came from. So regardless of, of where you were from and what your worldview was, the, the geographical origins of both Christianity and Jesus himself were shameful. There was shame in Jesus' origins. There was shame in Jesus' crucifixion. Now, let's imagine for a second that the apostles of Jesus made the whole thing up, the whole resurrection story and everything that happened after. Let's imagine they made it up. If you're a historian that, that does not believe in the message of the New Testament, let's say you're an atheist historian, and, and I'll say that even atheist historians agree that Jesus was a historical figure. He really lived. They don't believe he was the son of God. They don't believe he was resurrected from the dead. They don't believe in any of the miracles, but they can't deny that he is a real historical figure. So you'd have to imagine, I would assume, if you're a historian, that the people who wrote these things made them up, that it's all fictional, but that they wanted to tell a story that people would believe. They wanted to convince the world that all this stuff happened when it didn't. If that's the case, then one thing you absolutely would not want to do if you're one of these people trying to write this story is you would not want to associate the story or any of the events in the story with well-known famous people. Because these documents that comprise the New Testament, the Acts, the Apostles, the Gospels, would be circulated in some of them in the same time as many of these people lived. And they could have refuted them if they wanted to. You would want to, if you were making up a story, mostly have obscure and nameless figures that were made up so that nobody could fact check. Nobody could, could follow the evidence and see where it leads and that's exactly the opposite of what we find in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. We have people like Herod Agrippa II. You remember him, king of the Jews? And at the end of his last missionary journey, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is arrested. And he demands, as a Roman citizen, it's his right to be tried in a Roman court. But before he gets there, he has an interview and an audience with the king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa II. And he gives this great speech about, about the gospel message. And, and in it, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and everything that happened. And at the end of his speech, this is what happened. I'm starting at verse 24 of Acts chapter 26. 
It says, as Paul thus spake for himself, Festus, another one of the rulers, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knows of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Now that last part that I read to you, don't read too much into that. I used to do this, but I don't think what I read was the best translation of it. I don't think what Agrippa is saying, you've almost converted me. I think more likely based on the translation, he's saying, do you really think you can convert me to be a Christian? But the part that I want to focus on is a little bit before that, where Paul says to Agrippa, in reference to the resurrection story, everything he's just said, Agrippa, I know you've heard these stories because they, none of this was done in a corner. Many, many people heard about them. Many people that are still alive today, Paul will see in another place, saw these things happen. He said over 500 people saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. He said that to Agrippa, and there is no record of Agrippa saying, no, that's not true. I haven't heard that story. Everyone had heard that story. The entire known world or modern world at that time had heard that story. It really, those things had not happened in a corner. And nothing has come down to us from all of the writings we have from that time, from anyone who has been able to debunk the fact that the tomb of Jesus really was empty. It just hasn't happened. And we've got all these writings making this, the, the, these claims about what happened with Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead. And Herod Agrippa II is just one example of many famous people that are integral, uh, integral parts of, of various parts of the stories that we have in the Bible. You've got people like Pontius Pilate, Annas and Caiaphas, both of them high priests at different times. Joseph of Arimathea, himself a member of the Sanhedrin council, council and also a follower of Jesus. For that matter, Nicodemus too, also a member of the Sanhedrin council, also a follower of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, it was his tomb. Don't you think after a while, if his tomb really wasn't empty, that he'd be like, all right, all right, the, the jig is up. I, I don't believe it anymore because the, the stone is still there. But that did not happen. And as time went by, there were a lot of people who had a vested interest in making something like that happen. If anybody could have actually produced the dead body of Jesus, we would have no Christianity today. But that did not happen. But back to my original point here, if you want to start a fake religion and you want people to believe it, then you would do that by linking it to nameless, obscure people. And that is exactly the opposite of what we have here in the Acts of the Apostles and in the, the last part of each of the Gospels. Now, onto what I think is one of the most powerful evidences for, for what was happening at this time, which is the alienation that you would be signing up for if you decided to become a Christian at this time. And people from all walks of life were doing this. Poor people, rich people, people of all different cultures and languages were walking away from everything they had, walking away from their former lives to become Christians. If you did this, the Jews would dislike you, the Romans would dislike you, your family, in many cases, would disown you, everybody would avoid you or make fun of you. This is in the Bible, we have record of it, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, call to remembrance the former days in which, 
After you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of those that were so used. First Peter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. This is what you were signing up for if you decided to become a Christian. Another historian and a professor of theology, Bruce Molina, in his social science commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, he wrote, given the sharp social stratification prevalent in antiquity, persons engaging in inappropriate social relations risked being cut off from networks on which their positions depended. In traditional societies, this was taken with deadly seriousness. Alienation from family or clan could literally be a matter of life and death, especially for the elite who would risk everything by the wrong kind of association with the wrong kind of people. If you were facing the decision of whether or not to become a Christian, you would need to have some pretty compelling, pretty extraordinary evidence to convince you to do that. Because in many, many cases, you were walking away from everything, sometimes even your own family. And sometimes it would mean death. And throughout the world, tens of thousands of people were making this choice. What can explain it? Jesus predicted this would happen before it happened. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, he said, everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. When Jesus spoke those words, this was not happening. His followers were not persecuted when he was still alive like this. It would happen afterwards. And around the world, people from all walks of life were choosing this path. What can account for it? If you do not believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, if you do not believe the miracles that are written about in the Acts of the Apostles, then how can you explain it? And historians are faced with this problem. You might be wondering, how do they explain it? If, if you're an agnostic or an atheist historian that deals with this time period, you are faced with this problem. And it's a very real problem. You saw that quote from the Wikipedia article. There's no consensus among historians as to why Christianity was able to spread so successfully during these early times. One of the things that I have seen said is that it's not without precedent. So when it happened, it was without precedent. There had never been something like Christianity before that started with a spark like that and then spread as quickly as it did. But in the centuries since then, there have been things like that. And the two things that are often quoted, the two different religions, if you will, are Mormonism and Islam. Both of those religions started like a spark, just like that, very small, and grew at a very, very rapid pace arguably even more rapidly than Christianity did when it started. So I think it's worth spending just a couple of minutes talking about the comparison between those religions and Christianity and acknowledging that Mormonism is itself a, a brand of Christianity, but Mormonism and Islam are very different from each other. So let's consider them each separately. So let's start with Mormonism. 
And it's, it's built sort of upon the shoulders of Christianity. It, the Mormons still hold the Bible up as one of their two sacred books, but, but Mormonism was founded by a man named Joseph Smith, who claimed to have received continual revelations from God. Now, these were visions, so nobody else saw them, only he saw them, so you'd kind of have to trust that he was telling the truth. There was no evidence out there that you could seek out and, and verify that he was actually having these visions. And these revelations apparently expanded upon the message of the Bible and are the foundation of the Book of Mormon, which is the, the other holy book for the Mormons. And they hold the Bible and the Book of Mormon up sort of at equal levels side by side. So since it can't be verified what Joseph Smith said, maybe we should ask the question, did he have any motivation to make it up? Like, did he have anything to gain by pretending that he had these revelations from God? And the answer is a pretty resounding yes. It's a rags to riches story. This man came from nothing. He founded a community and became its leader. And if you know anything about Mormonism, you know it has a lot of polygamy in its history. The Mormon church has distanced itself from that now. But Joseph Smith himself famously had many, many wives. He had himself appointed, this title he gave himself, the prophet, priest, and king of the millennial monarchy. He became enormously wealthy. And little known fact, he even ran for president of the United States. So to answer the question, did Joseph Smith have any motivation to make up the things that he said? The answer is yes, he did. And they could not be independently verified. You had to just trust that he was telling the truth. And that last part is similar with Islam, although the rest of it's very different. So Islam, founded by the prophet Muhammad, Muhammad, born much earlier than Joseph Smith, born into a prominent clan in the city of Mecca. And his people at this time didn't believe in one God. Islam famously believes it, it's a monotheism, like, like Christianity, or at least, at least our brand of Christianity. It's a monotheism. They believed in one God, Allah. But when Muhammad was born, his people did not believe that. They believed in a pantheon of gods. And Muhammad was born into a family that had once been prominent, once powerful and wealthy, but had been in decline for a long time. So just like Joseph Smith, Muhammad claimed to have revelations from God during which the angel Gabriel spoke to him. And the holy book for Islam, the Quran, is based upon those revelations. And this is the similarity, just like Joseph Smith, only Muhammad saw these revelations. So you'd have to trust that, that he was telling the truth. And so we can ask the same question again, did he have any motivation to make it up? Did he have anything to, to gain from it? So the story goes like this. Uh, Muhammad started in his own city, in his home city, among his own family, preaching this new religion of one God, Allah. And he was exiled. He had to flee for his life from Mecca to another city called Medina. He was clearly very charismatic and very talented and became a holy man there and won the whole city of Medina over to him to the point where he controlled the military. Clearly, he was also had a brilliant military mind, and he used the military of this large city to one by one conquer all of the small nomadic tribes around them. And as he conquered them, he forced them to adopt his new religion. Then after he had this massive army, he came knocking back on his home city's door at Mecca, and he conquered Mecca as well. He conquered everybody in the surrounding area, and everybody was forced into this peaceful new religion at the time of Islam. Interestingly, though, he was in his military conquest, he was defeated several times, and, and often his revelations that he received would nicely line up with his political or his military agenda. And at one point, 
either maybe hoping for accommodation back within his own tribe where he'd been kicked out of, or maybe from, from fear or in hope of succeeding more readily because the people were struggling to leave behind their belief in many gods as opposed to one god. At one point, he pronounced a new verse in the Quran that acknowledged the existence of another three goddesses, the daughters of Allah, which was contradictory to the one God, the monotheism he'd been preaching all along. Later on, he retracted that, uh, redacted that verse and said it had been the work of the devil. So that's it's not, in Islam, not part of Islam anymore. So if you're wondering, did Muhammad have any reason to make it all up? Did he gain from it? The answer, in, again, is a resounding yes. It's, again, a rags-to-riches story. And he very definitely changed the world. He was clearly very gifted, very charismatic, and brilliant. But you would have to trust that the things that he was saying about the revelations that he received were true. And did he have any reason to make it up? Now, let's look at Christianity in comparison to, to those two other religions. And first of all, it's very different in one very important way. Because unlike Joseph Smith and unlike Muhammad, where all of the evidence was locked away in one person's head, the evidence for Christianity was hung out to dry for anyone who wanted to investigate to go investigate. It was put out for the world to fact check. Even today, it's put out for us. This is kind of what we're doing tonight to fact check and go back and see if it had been disproven. All of the evidence was open for anybody to investigate. We ask about the question of motivation, as we've done with Joseph Smith and Muhammad. Let's ask the same question about the apostles. If they went out and made up the story that they wanted people to believe, did they have any motivation to do so? Did it make sense for them to do so? Did they gain anything from it? You could argue maybe they gained something small. Maybe they gained some friends they didn't have before, but they didn't gain wealth. They didn't gain power. They were ridiculed. They had to suffer for what they believed in. And within 30 years, most of them had died violently for what they believed in. The apostles had no reason to continue fabricating this story over and over again to a man until they died. But not a single one of them changed their story. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. I'd like you to come with me to Acts chapter 5. I love this little story. It's when the apostles are first starting to preach the gospel message. And Peter and some of the other apostles are arrest, arrested by the leaders of the Jews. They've been told to stop preaching. And they've ignored that. And the, the leaders of the Jews are enraged, and they're about to kill them when one man stands up in their midst. And that man was Gamaliel, a respected elder, the mentor and teacher of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to start reading in verse 34 of Acts chapter 5. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. I'm going to pause there for just a second. We actually know about many false Jewish messiahs under the reign of the Roman Empire. All of them failed. Many of them died miserably. Many of their followers were killed. And Gamaliel is referencing two of those occasions that had already happened at this point. So he goes on in verse 38, and he says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And the words of Gamaliel echo throughout hundreds of years, throughout over 2,000 years of history to us today. He looked at the reality of the situation and he said, look, this movement is doomed to fail. He knew about many of the same things that we looked at tonight. And he realized this won't succeed. You don't have to kill these men. They're not going to succeed unless God really is behind them. And if God really is behind them, then you're not going to stop them. He was right. They should not have succeeded. Christianity should have died in the cradle. Instead, it spread unchecked throughout the world like wildfire. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a man named Albert Henry Ross. And he set out to write a book. He'd grown up going to a Christian church, but as an adult, his faith had lapsed. He uh, was a journalist. He had some legal training. And he wanted to write a paper that was critical of the gospel accounts of the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection story. He wanted to poke holes in it. He wanted to do a really thorough job, look at, look at all of the historical writings that we have outside of the Bible, look at the culture at that time, compare the accounts with each other and see if there are gaps. And he wrote a book. That book was called Who Moved the Stone? He wrote it under the pen name Frank Morrison. But by the time he wrote the book, it was the exact opposite of the paper he had started out trying to write. He believed in the story. And this book, which I recommend if, if you find, if, if it sounds, if this description sounds interesting to you, go read it. It's a great book. It's not very long. It's an easy read. So this is a quote from the end of Who Moved the Stone? And he's talking about the apostles as they went out into the world to preach the gospel. He wrote, the terrors and the persecutions these men ultimately had to face and did face unflinchingly do not admit of a half-hearted adhesion secretly honeycombed with doubt. The belief has to be unconditional and of adamantine strength to satisfy the conditions. Sooner or later, too, if the belief was to spread, it had to bite its way into the corporate consciousness by convincing argument and attempted proof. Now, the peculiar thing about this phenomenon is that not only did it spread to every single member of the party of Jesus of whom we have any trace, but they brought it to Jerusalem and carried it with inconceivable audacity into the most keenly intellectual center of Judea, and against the ablest dialecticians of the day, and in the face of every impediment, a brilliant and highly organized Camarilla could devise. And they won. Within 20 years, the claim of these Galilean peasants had disrupted the Jewish church and impressed itself upon every town on the eastern littoral of the Mediterranean from Caesarea to Troas. In less than 50 years, it had begun to threaten the peace of the Roman Empire. 
When we have said everything that can be said about the willingness of certain types of people to believe what they want to believe, to be carried away by their emotions and to assert as fact what has originally reached them as hearsay, we stand confronted with the greatest mystery of all. Why did it win? Why did it win? It should not have succeeded. Christianity should not have spread. It should have been short-lived. It should have died unless the apostles were telling the truth. Unless hundreds of people really did see the risen Lord after he'd been resurrected. Unless all of the miracles that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles really did happen. And if they really did happen, then wouldn't we want to seriously consider everything else that's been written in this book that we have in front of us? It would be the most important thing that has ever been written. And we want to consider how we should change our lives so that we too can be offered the salvation that's talked about in its pages. Because once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.